Am I on now? Yes? I am? All right, great. There you go. Don't tell that to my students. All right. Well, good morning, church. It's good to, uh, good to be together. Good to see all of you. Why don't we turn uh, in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we'll begin this morning. Genesis chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 1, uh, 2, and 3 as a jumping off point. And um, by the way, if you, uh, if you see any members of our uh, greeting slash security team that, that was outside this morning, still not. Oh, man. I was going to use both hands this morning to preach. All right. If you... Uh, If you see any of those members that were outside in the cold, why don't you give them a hug or tell them good job or something this morning? All right. Uh, I, I, I don't think this will be the last cold Sunday morning they'll be out there, but it was definitely the first big test, I think, for some of them. And so uh, I'm so thankful for them um, and, and what they have volunteered to do. And so be sure to, be sure to thank them for the, the service that they are giving. Genesis chapter 12. Let's pray together and then we'll begin. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. I pray that you would uh, allow us to understand there is uh, a lot of complexity to your word and uh, we need your spirit to open our eyes to understand so that we can know who you are, um, what you require, uh, what our lives are to be about. And we are thankful that you reveal yourself to us in your word, and that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. And we thank you for your grace to us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee all the families of the earth will be blessed. I want to talk to you this morning about uh, God regarding God, the God of covenants. The God of covenants. The text we have just read is an example, and a most important example, of a covenant. Uh, a covenant of God the one true and living God. Now that statement may not perk your interest. Uh, you may not be curious at all. You may think, what? That doesn't sound too exciting. But one of the reasons is we do not talk about covenant a lot in our churches, and we should. It's very, very, very important. It's tragic that we do not uh, talk about covenant and understand covenant. The Bible is full of this thing called covenant. You cannot read through the first book of the Bible without seeing covenant mentioned over and over and over again. And yet somehow we have seemed to get along without it in our culture of Christianity, at least uh, without understanding it clearly. And so we need to understand this idea of covenant. It's important for our understanding of the Bible. It's important for our understanding of human history and of the God that we know and serve. And if we don't understand covenant, we will we'll suffer because of it. And the things we're going to look at this morning may be a little 
uh, complex uh, to some of you. Maybe some of these, these things are, are first time you've heard some of these things. And I'm just asking you to kind of uh, stay with us this morning. And hopefully uh, by the end of it all, uh, it will make a little more sense. I was thinking lately uh, as I was visiting family, the different homes we went to and, and, and uh, places that we were, um, I, was, I was looking at TV remotes. Okay, uh, In this day of boasted simplicity and ease, uh, it seems people are amassing more and more remote controls. Can I get an amen? Okay, It's like now, instead of one control, there's like a basket where there's an army of remotes to Fire Stick, Roku, DVD, uh, Blu-ray, maybe even a VCR, perhaps a VCR. And so there's all these uh, remotes. Uh, maybe some of you received a, a new TV or an appliance for Christmas. And what, what I've noticed uh, with that is there's never, uh, when someone gets a new TV, there's never, it's never left alone forever. Uh, there's never no one in a home that doesn't know how to use the remote. Um, there's always somebody that has to kind of bite the bullet and, and figure out how to use that complicated remote. Now, what I have seen, and this may not be your home, is that there are, many, there are oftentimes only one person in the home that understands how to work the remote, and everyone else relies on that one person to figure out how to turn their stuff on and make this thing work or get this to this right channel. And some of you uh, are smiling. I know you can identify and so I'm making no judgments about who that person might usually be in the home who knows or doesn't know that, that how to work the control. But what I want to say is that sometimes uh, when something is seen as complex, it uh, gets easy to rely on someone else who knows how to work it. And that may be fine uh, for the TV. It may be fine to not learn for yourself. But it's not okay with the Bible. Uh, I, I'm a preacher, and my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to expound upon the scriptures, but that doesn't mean that, that I'm the guy with the remote and that you all as the congregation or even myself relying on others, it, I, can't, I can't be in that place. I have a responsibility to know the scriptures. And honestly, sometimes it's just perception. That control is not as difficult as we make it out to be if we would take five minutes to sit down and have someone explain it to us or write down the instructions and try to figure out how to do this. The Bible is certainly complex and mysterious at times, but it's not that complex TV remote that you've given up on. It is the great word of our creator. It is what he has given us in order to know him and what he has given us to make sense of the world and the universe, and our very lives. And one of the things that helps us make sense of the entire Bible is this thing called covenant. So what is a covenant? Well, for reasons of simplicity, a covenant, if you're taking notes, um, a covenant is a relational agreement that is centered or founded upon promise. It's a relational agreement centered on a promise. A promise says... 
There are many different types and kinds of covenants in the Bible. Some are between men. Some are between men and God. Some are are, are initiated and ceremonialized in in various ways. Some of the covenants in the Bible uh, were were very gross. They were sealed with with blood in a way. One of the things, uh, in fact, the root word of covenant means means to cut. and, And one of the things that they would do is when they would come to this relational agreement based upon promise they would cut an animal they would they would sacrifice this animal and the two parties that were pledging to one another would walk in between this sacrifice to symbolize that they were serious about the covenant some covenants have stipulations and agreements where uh, one or both parties have to fulfill certain obligations uh, in order for the covenant to, to be valid some are between parties that are equal in strength um, neighbors, um, you think of David and Jonathan had a covenant with, with one another. Some are between people who are stronger and weaker. It could be like a king making a covenant with his subjects. And that's kind of what we get to with God. No one is stronger than God, but when it comes to the covenants that God makes with men, there is usually a promise that God chooses to obligate himself to fulfill. No one is as strong as God, and yet he makes a promise with man. His covenants are relational agreements with man that are centered on his promises. And so two things that are important to to understand. God chooses to promise something. And number two, he makes his promise as he enters into a relationship with men. You can have an agreement or a contract and not have a relationship with someone. You understand? You you don't, you, you might, you don't, you don't necessarily care about knowing them. You can just have an agreement. You can also have an a, a, a agreement with someone when a promise is not present. A promise is something that you agree to do no matter what. A promise is something you agree to do no matter what. There's no out clause. You can have a contract with an out clause. That's not a promise. A promise is something that you agree to do no matter what. Now, I want you to think about that with me for a minute. If you're sitting here today, I'll ask you a couple of questions. Do you think of God as being disinterested or distant from the events of humanity or regarding your own life, whether in general or at specific times? Do you think of God as being disinterested or distant? Are you tempted to believe that at times? When you feel distant from God or when you feel that... that uh, he, is, he is distant, or his heart, or his care, or compassion are distant from you. When horrors or tragedies happen, are you tempted to think that God is aloof or went on vacation? Likewise, are you tempted to believe, as many in our culture are tempted to believe, that God is merely a watcher over your life? That he's just a great counselor in the sky waiting for you to live out your life and to do what you want to do while he watches you and stays out of your business unless really, really needed. He just wants you to be happy. He helps you when you hurt. If you pray really, really, really hard, you can get him off the couch and get him to do something. But mainly, it's all about you living your life the way you want to live, and he's just there watching and waiting and observing for you to direct him on occasion when you need help or support? Is God merely a watcher to you? Well, none of those concepts are biblical concepts of God. God has never been, never 
than a mere observer. He is invested. He is invested in his creation, in this plan of history, and in your life and mine. He invests himself on a nonstop, continual basis in mankind. Now that investment may not always be favorable to the men. He may be invested in a, in a wrathful sense, in an anger toward their unrighteousness and evil. Or he may be invested in a loving sense toward his children. This thought of God being so great and so mighty and, and so powerful and yet being invested, this thought that God invests himself in mankind, not just with his eyes as a watcher, but with his heart, with his promises, and in relationship with man, it floored King David. And it should amaze us as well. Here's what David wrote in Psalm 8. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? The son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than, than the, the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. It floored David to think that God would promise. Think about that. That God would invest. God is not distant. We are not deists. We believe that God is working and is intimately involved in His creation. And so this morning, we're going to look at, at six uh, uh, major covenants of God. We're going to uh, briefly survey them. I didn't say my sermon was going to be brief. I said we're going to briefly, and all the people said amen. I said, uh, I said we're going to briefly survey six major covenants of God this morning. There are more than six, but we're going to look at six of the most important ones, and they're going to help us understand history, understand God himself, why he acts the way that he acts, and does the things that he does. It's going to help us to understand. And so if you're taking notes, uh, there will be a slide on the board. There will be a covenant um, and who it's named after. There will be a, a primary scripture that I will give you. I don't think that's on the screen. Um, and a characteristic of God that you can look for uh, look, look at for further reflection. So as I looked at these six covenants, I began to see uh, a characteristic of God that, that is evident in these, these covenants. Uh, it doesn't say, it doesn't give these characteristics, it doesn't line them out in the Scripture, but it's just something for you to help distinguish each of these covenants and something to use uh, in a devotional sense as you think about God's promises, God's covenant relationships in the Bible. The first is the uh, Adamic covenant, named after Adam. This is the first covenant that God makes, and it's with Adam, the first man in Eden. It's often called the covenant of works or of obedience. And it's different from the others in a major way because in this covenant, for the fullness of a relationship to exist between God and man and for Adam to have life, Adam had to be holy and sinless and obedient to God and his commands. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord took the man, to, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good, or evil, good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
And so there's a condition there, a condition there. Adam's obedience. The prophet Hosea tells us uh, that this was indeed a covenant that God made with Adam, and he broke that covenant. Hosea says that like Adam, they have violated the covenant. They have betrayed me. When Adam sinned, it affected us all. We all willingly sin now, and because of this, we deserve death like Adam. We have all broken this uh, command of God, this uh, covenant of God. We have all failed to obey God perfectly. And so now we cannot have life and relationship with God through our obedience or our works to please Him. No amount of commandments that we try to keep will do it. Now, each of us can be saved by works. Some of your eyebrows went up. Hold on. Each of us can be saved by works, but not our works. Only by the works of Jesus. It is His life that can save us. He is the second Adam, according to the Apostle Paul, who speaks of this in the book of Romans, who fulfills this covenant with God. Jesus, in a sense, goes back to this covenant where Adam failed, and it is Jesus who fulfills God's commands, who perfectly obeys His Father and becomes our new representative. And so each of us can have life, not by trying to be good and to keep uh, the law and to keep the works that God commands, but by trusting in the one who has been perfect, in the one who did keep the laws of God and the covenant of works. In this covenant with Adam, God reveals himself to be a generous creator. God gives Adam life. He gives Adam a wife. He gives him a home. He gives him a, a job within that beautiful garden. He gives him everything he needs to live joyfully. And most importantly, he enters into a relationship with this man that he created. God is not a hoarder. God overflows. And in his overflow of goodness and glory, he created man in order to bless man with the joys and the knowledge of his creator. How good of God to do this. In reality, all of God's covenants are full of this thing we call grace. Even this covenant of works. Grace can be defined as God's undeserved loving help. And before Adam sinned, God is pouring out generous help to Adam and love to Adam. And after he sinned and had to be removed from the garden, God was still pouring out grace to Adam and to Eve. In Genesis 3, the salvation of Jesus is foretold to Adam. And that one day God would have grace and find a way to forgive mankind and to redeem them from Adam's sin and the fall that he caused. We see God's grace again in his covenant with Noah 1,600 years later, the second covenant we'll look at. With perhaps millions and millions of men on the earth, these people had become so vile that God had to destroy them. He had to judge them. And so he flooded the entire world in a cataclysmic flood. But he saved Noah and his family in order to start humanity afresh again. Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 through 18. God said, understand, this is before the flood, understand that I'm bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die, but I will establish my covenant with you and will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. Notice how God said, I will enter the ark with you. 
Do you see the relationship there? People get the Old Testament so wrong when they talk about how all oh, the Old Testament God was just, just this tyrant and he, he wasn't loving and he wasn't, he wasn't uh, uh, caring about people. Here we see God being so close to Noah and his family that he says, I'm going to go into the ark with you during this catastrophe. And after the flood, God said this, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth, and, a, and, and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures on the earth. And so in this covenant, God reveals that he is a merciful judge. He did judge the earth. He had every right, though, to take up that judgment, that particular way of judging the flood, and to use it again if he wanted to. He's God. But he promises not to. Possibly because of the horrific nature of this great event, and possibly in order to comfort Noah and his family, who would no doubt be in great fear that God could do this again. He chooses to withhold his right to judge the world in this way again. This is a promise that God has to this day with every living creature on planet earth there will never be a worldwide flood again and every time we see a rainbow in the sky we are to be uh, reminded of this promise of god man is still sinning and rebelling against god after the flood though and so a few hundred years later god calls a man named abraham into covenant with him the third covenant we'll look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Abraham was a, was a pagan. He didn't worship God. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you, I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possessions, and I will be their God. So important is this covenant to Scripture, to history, and to you and me. It affects us even to this day. God grabs a pagan idolater named Abram, and he takes this pagan worshiper, and he promises to bless him, to multiply him, to give him a great name, to protect him, to bless him with land, and bless all the peoples of the world one day, through him. Of course, we know that that's talking about Jesus. That in the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing to all the nations will be Jesus Christ, who will be a descendant of Abraham. And so, God adopts a people, a nation for himself that he will have a special relationship with. And in this covenant, God shows himself to be a loving father. 
It's ironic to me. For many years, the only thing I knew about Abraham was that Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left, bob your head, turn around. That's all I knew was that song growing up. I couldn't tell you anything about Abraham other than that he was a father and that he had many sons. And so it's ironic because here it's, it's impossible to get away from the fact that, that God is showing Abraham his, his fatherly love. God gave Abraham children. God gave Abraham inheritance. God gave Abraham a name, a great name. All things showing God's fatherly heart. God revealed to Abraham also that one day God himself would give the greatest gift a father could give, his son Jesus, as the perfect sacrificial lamb to save sinners. 430 years later, Paul tells us, uh, we see our fourth covenant, the covenant of Moses, or the Sinaitic uh, covenant, because it was given at Mount Sinai. This was given to the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai, It's when God brings the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, gives them the Ten Commandments and other instructions, and starts to form them as an organized nation. Because shortly after God gave this promise to Abraham, uh, Jacob and his sons and everyone, they went to Egypt. Remember, and Joseph was, was there. And so after that, they were in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. And now God's bringing them out. And so... This fourth covenant, the Mosaic covenant, we read in uh, Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from uh, Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Nothing has confused the world more than this covenant. It's often called the Old Covenant. It's where we get the idea of Old Testament from, although Testament is not the best wording of that. The covenant of Moses is often called the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the laws of God is what people commonly think of when they think of the Old Covenant. You know, people naturally gravitate, at least I do, toward self-righteousness. We gravitate that way. Even though we can't keep rules, we want to pretend that we can, and we look at our own imagined goodness, uh, and we have a a temptation to exalt ourselves. Well, I'm better than so-and-so because I don't do this. I'm better than so-and-so because I've kept this rule. Oh, if you go out and you try to share Jesus with anybody uh, in this county, nobody apparently has murdered anyone, and so they're okay with God. That's the big thing. Well, I've never killed anybody, and so I'm okay with God. And so we gravitate towards self-righteousness based upon this idea of, of keeping God's law in our head. Uh, and so that, that, that's a problem. Uh, and when, we, when, when people look at rules and rituals and commandments and ways that God told the people of Israel to worship him at Mount Sinai under the leadership of Moses, many people throughout history 
and, and including many of these Israelites, got the, the wrong idea. In this covenant, this relationship of promise, God gave his standards and his commands to Israel, but it was never to take away their personal sin. I'll say that again. He gave them his commands, his standards, his ways of worship, and he held them to that, but it was never to take away their personal sin. It could never do that. Just like trying to keep the Ten Commandments today or trying to be a good person can never take away your sin, the sin that you have between you and God. Keeping those rules can't take that sin away. It can't take that punishment away and make you right with God finally. And so what is God doing in this law? Well, one thing that God is doing is he is displaying the character of a patient guide, a patient guide. He was guiding them in at least three ways. I'll give them to you. The first way was to know. He was guiding them to to learn that he is holy and how to worship him. God gave them instructions on how to build a place of worship, the tabernacle, which mirrored heaven. He instructed them on how to approach him and how to live as his people. He gave them rules for loving and treating one another in righteousness and for how to honor him as a community and as individuals. And so the first thing he guided them on was, hey, listen, guys, I am holy. There's all these other guys, all gods out here, just like there are today. There's all kinds of things in this world that you can worship, but there's only one of them that is truly holy. There's only one of them that you should truly fear, and that is God. Number two, that the Israelites were sinners and that sin was horrible. So many millions and millions and millions of animal deaths, animal lives, and human lives killed because of sin. And the people were reminded daily in the fact that they were not sinless, but they themselves had rebelled against God and His laws. And number three, that these rituals that God gave them never took away sin. They were only an agreement, a temporary agreement, a concession that God made with them to postpone judgment for a time in order for them to have a relationship with Him and also for Jesus Christ to come into the world and to become that perfect sacrifice so that we could be near to God and have that relationship with God. If any of these horrible sacrifices, uh, any of these sacrifices took away sin, think about this. If they did take away sin, then all a person would have to do is just sacrifice a lot more. And maybe they could get enough sacrifices to cover all their sin for their entire life, right? Right? They could just keep adding sacrifices. Maybe they could get ahead. All right, I'm on year three now. Here's five or six more goats. Let me add a few more years on there. And eventually, maybe you could pay for all of your sin. But it never worked that way. It never worked that way. And there's a reason. Only Jesus can take away our past, our present, and our future sin. Amen? Only He can do that. I've met people that have struggled with the idea that Jesus forgives their future sin. The reason Jesus forgives your future sin is because he is the perfect sacrifice. That's how it works. If you struggle with believing that Jesus forgives your future sin, then you're in the same boat as some of these wrong-thinking Israelites. What Jesus did on the cross is powerful enough to cleanse our entire lives. And that's the freedom that we live out of. 
His love for us in that way, that's what we live out of. Paul summarizes this in Galatians 3. Is the law therefore contrary? The laws of God, the Ten Commandments, and the other 600 laws that that Moses gave. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the Scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our tutor until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. And that faith is in Jesus. The old covenant and working to keep God's laws to gain His favor will not work. The Old Covenant is temporary. It's designed by a patient God until a new covenant could take away our sin and change us, not only legally before God, but in the, on the inside. Let me stop for a minute and kind of pull some of these together real quick to help you understand in, in kind of a practical way as you're studying Scripture why these covenants matter. Take the book of Judges, for instance. The book of Judges which happened not many years after Moses, is a terrible book. It's not like so often it is teached in Sunday school. These people are not heroes. They're not heroes. These, these 13 judges, maybe a couple of them could be said to be okay. But in the time period of the judges, during that 300 or so years, Right after, God gives them his precious law and he explains how he's holy and he explains the wickedness of their sin and, and he explains these things to them and he's training them. After Joshua and the elders die, the nation just rebels against God and they do it over and over and over and over again. The book of Judges is brutal, it is wicked, it is vile. And the nation of Israel actually becomes just like all the other pagan nations, even worse, I would say, because they had some knowledge of God. But they continued to rebel against God. And the only reason you have Gideon and Samson and others that may be mentioned in Hebrews 11 is because finally, as is the case with Samson, Samson finally at the end of his life gave up, repented, and trusted God. And so it is his faith. It is not his inward qualities as a leader. It is his faith in God. That is the reason that Samson is to be looked at in any way as a role model. It's because of his faith. And so you look through the book of Judges, which is, is so vile and, 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 uh, and, and so awful, and so much death and so much wickedness. What's the point? Who's the hero of this book? Well, God's the hero of this book. The reason the book of Judges exists in the Bible is to show you and to show me God's faithfulness in the face of great wickedness among His people. In the face of a people who are literally running out into the road to destroy themselves, it is God who has His hand on their wrist and is pulling them back from complete destruction and death. God is the hero. And so, in a way, the book of Judges is one of the most beautiful books in all of the Scriptures, not because of what you read, but because God stayed with this wicked people. And aren't you so glad that God stays with you? And God stays with me? And so, to understand that, you have to understand God's covenant that He made with Abraham. That God made a promise that this people would be His people. And so, when God says to you, 
I'm going to make you my child. I'm going to make you my son and my daughter. You should believe that. You should rejoice in that. And you should look at the book of Judges and elsewhere as proof that God keeps His covenants, keeps His promises. A final uh, uh, covenant quickly before we get to Jesus. In Judges it says there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds a lot like today. That's why they got so bad. They were doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel, it says. So the idea is that a king would bring righteousness to the people and help them live according to God's laws. What's sad about that is it didn't really happen long term. The Israelites would go on to have over 40 kings and even a queen, and and nearly all of them were, were absolutely wicked. Absolutely wicked. They would kill family members. They would do horrible things. They, they were just absolutely wicked, except for a handful of them. And so Israel never really... That, that, having a king didn't really change a whole lot long term for the nation. And that's why God's covenant to King David would be a great comfort to a weary Israelite during that time, and it's a great comfort today because God promises David that one of his descendants would sit on an eternal throne. And so we come to the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant reveals the character of God as a righteous king over us as he promises to give David and us a righteous, a good, eternal king. Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4, Ethan the psalmist writes, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Back to understanding the Bible. Why do genealogies of Jesus in the Bible matter? One of the reasons is that at times they are proving that God kept His promise because it is linking Jesus to His forefather David in order to show that God has kept His covenant to David. That's just an example. Everything in the Bible has a purpose. And God's covenant runs through the genealogies. And it runs through the entire book of the Bible. Finally, we come to the new covenant. A covenant that is for every person. No matter your your nationality, your ethnicity, uh, no matter your economic level, no matter what sins you have committed, whether you're male, female, child, The new covenant is for everyone. It's a covenant showing us Jesus as a selfless Savior. Luke 22, verse 19 and 20 says, And Jesus, and he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The covenant of Jesus was ratified, was sealed, with his own blood. Jesus fulfills the promises of God. He is the one that is pointed to in the Mosaic covenant as the perfect sacrifice and law keeper. He is the seed of Abraham that will bless the nations. And he is the righteous eternal king, the descendant of King David. He is selfless and laid down his life purchasing the, uh, the, this covenant, this new life for you and me with his very blood. The one who said, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began is the same one who said, Greater love has no man than he who lays down his life for his friends. And he would lay down his life for us. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant 
that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by their hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, I disregarded them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. Jesus has bought that promise for us. Jesus has bought that relationship where each person can say, I know the Lord. They all will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. I want to drive home a few few points as we conclude. You aren't an Israelite living in the Old Testament, but you can have the best of God's covenant and covenants and promises right now. Jesus said if you will turn away from your sin and forsake it and trust in him that he would pardon your sin and give you new and eternal life with him in his family. Would you trust him today? Would you trust him? The meaning, you can't miss this, the meaning of being a Christian and living the Christian life is that you are a person who has faith and trust in God and his promises. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has faith in God and his promises. That's what faith is, to trust in God and his promises. And God has made these covenants so that you and I will not ignore them, will not put them on the side like an old dirty TV remote, but will pick them up and treasure them and say, wow, look at this amazing promise that God has made. And so will you trust Jesus, maybe for the first time today, Jesus says, here's this covenant, here's this relationship that I want to be in with you, and you can have it freely. My son has paid the cost. You just need to turn from your sin and come and trust me and let me forgive you of your sin. Ask me and I will clean you and make you whole and make you mine. I am the friend that has laid down my life for you. There's also a reminder here for all of us today to take seriously the covenants we have made with others. Honoring our marriage covenant, striving to keep our promises to one another by God's strength and love. Um, our covenant is a church. We are currently studying our, our church covenant here at Wyatt. And you may not realize this, but if you're a member of this body, you've made promises to this body, and you've entered into a relationship with this body. You have covenanted. You have said, I'm going to do these certain things no matter what. And so as we begin a membership uh, series in the coming weeks, keep that in mind, that you have covenanted to be a member of this church. And that, that is a glorious thing. That, that has responsibility attached to it, but it is so glorious and so full of joy to be a part of God's body, of Jesus' church. Finally, in this... Uh, soon-to-be season of New Year's resolutions. and How many of you have any New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. Two of you. How many of you are going to think of some today, probably? <laughs> or, or maybe some of you will think of one on New Year's Eve, maybe. Well, this is New Year's Eve. That's right. I don't know what day it is. So around this time, resolutions get a big buzz. Everybody talks about resolutions. People write books on resolutions and how to keep your resolutions. And, be mindful of the fact that God, God, 
has resolved and committed and promised and covenanted and kept more than we can ever imagine. And it's He who we love. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You. And those of us here who belong to You, we thank You today that You have promised things to us. Undeserved things. Unimaginable things. That You have given us life and hope and peace in Your Son. And I pray, God, that You would help each of us to understand more and more Your beautiful plan. The love that You have poured out on mankind, on the nation of Israel, on each of us. That You're a generous Creator. That You're a merciful Judge. That You're a loving Father. That You're a patient Guide. That You're a righteous King. And that Your Son Jesus is a selfless Savior. And I pray today, God, that if someone does not know this selfless Savior, that they will come to Him in faith and trust in Your promises. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand.